Welcome back to another episode of Radical Narrative. I am your host, Mylon Tatusis, coming at you from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, 2D6 territory. Today on the podcast, I am sitting down with Caitlin Erickson. Caitlin Erickson is a determined advocate and former student of the Legacy Christian Academy, a school located here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Along with other former students, she has taken legal action against the school and its parent church organization, seeking justice for very real abuses that have taken place there at the school. Caitlin has faced threats and acts of vandalism. However, she does remain resolute in her mission to bring about positive change and support for students who have experienced the abuses taking place there. There's a lot to this story. There's a lot of information. I want to give out a straight up trigger warning that there is references to abuse in this podcast. And there's some interesting ties and references to Texas, of all places. So for our Texas listeners, this is something you will want to listen to. So this is Caitlin's journey, truth, justice, and ongoing advocacy and awareness of, basically, as Caitlin puts it, a cult that exists here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. This ties into settler colonialism, so be sure to put your critical thinking caps on. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, be sure to stay tuned and listen in. Awesome. Welcome to Radical Narrative, Caitlin. It's great to have you. I'm going to let you go ahead and jump into introducing yourself. Sure. I'm Caitlin Erickson. Thank you for having me. I know we've never met in person, but I'm a big fan of your sister. <laughs> she's one of my best employees. <laughs> uh, she's, yeah, great person. Um, I, yeah, I just, we connected, I guess, you know, over a few things <laughs> in the last little bit here. Um, we've both gone through house fires and we also, I, I don't want to speak too much for you, but I think have a bit of a distaste for uh, religious institutions running mm-hmm. schools. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little bit of a connection there and, and observing what you're doing currently, what we're going to get into in the podcast for sure. In particular around the reality that there is still abuse taking place at religious schools in a time of reconciliation and a time of looking at the history of residential school and not to take away from that conversation obviously but to recognize that hey this paradigm this system you know this abuse still takes place today in society so how can you know we even have conversations about the past when there's still very really problematic things taking place Um, but we're going to get into that later in the podcast i want you to introduce yourself tell us who you are where you come from a bit of background about yourself Sure. So I was born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and I pretty much lived there my whole life. We did briefly uh, leave when I was about 10 uh, to Kelowna, and we came back within, I think it was six months. So it was a very brief time. But other than that, uh, pretty much been raised here in the prairies. Um, I've done a fair bit of work um, as an adult in CBOs, you know, nonprofits, and then working for the Ministry of Justice. So that's kind of where my path has taken me. Um, and I have six kids that are at home. <laughs> Large family. Large family. That tends to come up as an interesting conversation online for you, right? And we're going to talk a little yeah. bit about you doing social media. But yeah, people tend to sure. throw that in your face in a negative way. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that, it's hard to, I have six at home and I have one that has graduated out of the house and he's an adult 
And then I had my nephew living with me for a while too. So yeah, people tend to see the number of children and they're, you know, obviously have negative opinions, which is wild, but, or assumptions Mm -hmm. on how these children came to be. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And then also I like how you position yourself coming from the prairies. I mean, that's really big like aspect of our podcast as we do talk about what takes place out here, because I mean, obviously there's a lot of social issues, political issues, um, environmental issues that we tend to talk about here. Um, But I also want you to, I guess, speak specifically to um, like just lay the landscape out for us, for our listeners in terms of somebody who may not be from Saskatchewan or doesn't even know that we're out here. It's very flat, (laughs) you know, I, so I, uh, resided previously, I'm currently residing in Saskatoon, but Mm -hmm. I resided previously in North Battleford and yeah. Yeah. And I guess also that's where you met my sister Jelani, where she was working with you at the lighthouse, um, doing work there for a number of years, I want to say, but yeah, Battleford, it's a, Battleford is an interesting place. It tends to come up in a lot of conversations, not only on the podcast, but also on the news. That place, I've, I've lived in a few different places in Canada. There's nothing like North Bottleford. Just the dynamic there mm-hmm. is very, there's some really amazing people in the community that are trying to bring forth change, but it's also this black hole of toxicity. Yeah. So it's this really unique city, small city that's surrounded by all these uh, First Nations communities. And it's almost like a big rural city, but so the dynamic is different. Yeah. Yeah. There is a different dynamic out there in North Balford, Balford area, because it has a long history tied to, you know, the settlement of the prairie, especially around Fort Battleford. And obviously the reality that these reserves, our reserves are in that area and that town, that small city being, you know, the only central place where a lot of us have to go for groceries. A lot of us has to have to go to the bank. Um, so it's like the urban center for, for the communities in the area. But with that, there's a lot of social factors play out in, in that town around, you know, poverty, homelessness, houselessness, um, and the reality that a lot of people don't have homes to go to. So they tend to, you know, congregate in, in town and obviously, you know, poverty and drug and alcohol addiction, mental health issues really playing out in, in our communities also that tend to make their way into that town. Um, but there is a lot of racism. There's just so much racism. And, you know, I heard about it before moving there. You know, there was a lot of, obviously North Battleford's famous for its crime, you know, being called crime town and, being high on the crime stats index but the racism there is a whole other level and I think too I mean we connected over you know your brother's incident which the reason I decided to take to social media about that too was just seeing people's comments you know not like negating it and it was like no like that's the reality for people living there like that is that is just a Tuesday there you know, it's awful. So yeah, a lot of racism in the province. Um, you know, there's a lot of people trying to do good things, but it's, it's very rampant here. Yeah. And for our listeners that aren't familiar, I know a lot of people follow me on social media, so they are familiar, but for those who aren't familiar, my brother was assaulted mm-hmm. in uh, North Balford while he was returning a trailer. 
into a friend's backyard and uh he was stereotyped assaulted um there's footage out there there's photos out there you could bring it up on a google search but interestingly enough adam lesmeister the guy who assaulted him is getting sentenced today oh wow uh, so yeah we're sort of waiting to hear about that i can't get, get out there to north balfour because yeah i'm in saskatoon today and lots going on but yeah so that that's an interesting dynamic that maybe i should also do a podcast on <laughs> that is yeah but yeah, when I saw that, it was just infuriating and it was infuriating seeing people trying to explain away or um, say stereotypical things. And and it was like, I, I mean, I don't know your brother personally, but I, you know, I have a bit of experience with your family. And so I just I, I don't know, I felt the need to stand up for him and and just I mean, at the same time, my children are you know, I have some that are registered to Sweetgrass out that way. And my children have experienced that. I mean, I've seen it firsthand, you know, I've seen it going into stores, we've been in Costco and like, you know, things have happened. So it's, it's just ridiculous that at this point, people still try to negate that these things go on because they go on all the time. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and that's part of what, what I think attracted my attention to you, your platform and the message you're putting out there is that you're really critical in a very good way of what's taking place in the province, not only in terms of like the social dynamics, but also the political dynamics. Obviously, you know, the premier of Saskatchewan is pretty much, I mean, Saskatchewan is <laughs> going to hell in a hell basket, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, lots going on out here. And then, yeah, that critical analysis that you have on social media is really was really refreshing to see. Um, and then also, yeah, your support for, you know, putting out that TikTok that sort of broke down what took place with my brother in North Balfour too. That was really cool to see. And, and, and then seeing the comments and obviously seeing the storm that you you willingly go through sometimes too with <laughs> the social media commentary on Facebook, on uh, TikTok, on Twitter. It's, it's all over the place. And then even seeing you butt heads with known sort of far right conspiracy theorists in yep. Saskatchewan. And, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, like you're doing it. You're leading the charge. And it's really cool. And that's probably why we wanted platform you too is because obviously you know you're non-indigenous um you're white passing and and you're leading the charge in that way and, and we need more of that so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to get you on here was to say hey look at this person and what they're doing yeah i mean i think every person who has the ability to should be using their voice for these things because i mean in my personal background and experience the only reason why people continue to do the things they do is because people stay quiet and they don't say anything Mm -hmm. And I think growing up in the environment I did of like fear and intimidation, um, to be blunt, it was like beat out of me. So mm -hmm. I don't get intimidated by these people anymore. I don't have a fear. So engaging with them, some people sometimes message me and they're like, they'll see comments on social media and they're like, are you okay? Like I would be crying in my room right now. And I'm like, honestly, it doesn't bother me. Like half the time I read those ridiculous comments and I laugh and I'm like, Hey, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> But yeah, it's, there's a lot, um, I, I would say, especially those far right people, there's few of them and they're very loud. So there needs to be more voices for sure. You know, talking about, I don't know what's actually truthful because there's a lot of BS flowing out that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And then it, I don't know what it is with like social dynamics in Saskatchewan, but it seems like a lot of just general people fall victim to a lot of social media um, miseducation, <laughs> you know, a lot of miseducation showing up and it's kind of wild to see. And yeah, TikTok is like a front seat <laughs> to it. Like you get a front seat to what's really taking place and what people are picking up on. Yeah. And 
and yeah, and I guess you also you spoke specifically to like you put it pretty bluntly that you know that you did have a experience growing up where you know there was intimidation, there was abuse, um, there was violence, and 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 anyone who could Google your name or Google Saskatchewan and your name, it's going to come up that mm-hmm. you are actually leading the charge on exposing some of the abuse you experienced. And and what really drew me in terms of my analysis and my understanding was that in Saskatchewan, we're apparently in this era of reconciliation. We're apparently in this era of looking at residential school history and trauma and, you know, people coming to terms with that. Like I just taught a 200 level history of residential school course for University of Regina Social Work and people going through these um, emotions and learning the history. And it's really traumatic. It's in, you know, it's emotional, obviously. But then at the same time, we're still dealing with the presence of a religious institution that is carrying forward harm and doing some pretty problematic stuff. And I even like, even what really caught my attention to with you on social media was even positioned it as like a cult vibe going on uh, with the supporters and, 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 you know, the culture that exists here. And that really like alerted my attention too, because that's settler colonialism. Like it still exists. There's still an organization that exists that's doing a lot um, and has a lot of power in this province. Um, so yeah, can you speak to that? Can you speak to sort of, um, you know, your experience of what took place in your past and, and how you, um, what led you to speak out about the I think, the um, first yeah. off, before I really get into it, you know, one thing that I've got a few times on social media, and I just, I think your podcast is a great opportunity to kind of bring this up, um, is, you know, I've had comments where people have commented and been, you know, a little bit upset and they're like, it's, you know, you're speaking out about your experience at your abusive religious school. And, you know, they didn't listen to people in residential schools when they spoke out. And, you know, it took a huge court case and all this stuff, you know, to happen for there to be a light, you know, shone on it. And some, yeah, and you're correct, Mm -hmm. we're supposed to be going through reconciliation right now. Um, But I honestly believe like, I don't believe that if that whole process hadn't happened, no one would have listened to us. (laughs) So I, you know, give all of those survivors, like, I'm so thankful to them because they really paved the way for us to be able to speak out about our experience. Um, Because I don't, I don't even think 10 years ago, people would have listened to us, to be honest. And I've been out of that school for 17 years now. Yeah. Yeah. So this organized religious school that is committing abuse and atrocities, doesn't seem so far-fetched now in society, right? So the reality that, you know, residential school conversations have been happening for a while, and then suddenly you coming forward is leading, like, more people to realize, oh, okay, yeah, this is a problem, this is a thing. And and we will talk a little bit about that later in terms of, you know, even, like you said, you know, in the past, you did reach out to people who did not take these, um, the, the claims you were making seriously, did not take uh, you seriously in terms of trying to report this, um, so let's take a step back. So you did attend a school here in Saskatoon called Legacy Christian Academy um, for a number of years. So let's start there. I attended a private Christian school, for those who don't know, in Saskatoon. Uh, it was a um, K-12 school. It was run by the church that I attended. So half the building was a school, half the building was a church. It was all connected. But there was no distinction between church and school. Uh, it was one place. So there was a lot of stuff that went on. There was a lot of emotional abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse that happened, um, spiritual abuse and physical abuse. And I, 
think part of it too. So I didn't know a lot of it was completely illegal. Like I didn't know that because we were told growing up, this is legal. This, you know, what we're doing is legal because people would question that sometimes. So then the pastor would reiterate again, like over the pulpit, like this is legal, what we're doing. This is within our right. Um, but he would also make comments at the same time saying like, we're above man's law. We follow God's law. (laughs) So also indicating that, uh, maybe they knew what they were doing was wrong. Um, so then I, I gently over COVID started talking about my experience and I, when I did get some more information that what was, you know, what went on from K to 12 was totally illegal. So I started gently talking about it, um, actually without mentioning the name of the school or the, you know, any of the teachers, I got a bunch of DMS and a bunch of messages from people from another school. And they said, this sounds like this person where we attend school. And I was like, oh, and it was the former director of my school. He had opened another school and it was students from that school that recognized the behavior and was like, this is going on in our school and reached out to me. So that was just, okay, I need to come forward with this. Like this is, and I kind of already made a decision that I was like, okay, I'm going to come forward, but it's like sitting down and trying to put 12 years of abuse that happened to you in school down on paper and trying to remember dates and everything like that's difficult because there's so much that went on and it was just part of the normal day to day. So that was our normal life for us. Um, Yeah. And then I just, there was a student that spoke out on social media and just said, you know, uh, talked about actually the individual who's going through criminal court right now and said, uh, you know, how come we weren't told that this person is a pedophile? And I reached out to the person. I said, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about going forward to the police. Um, if you're considering doing that, you know, here's the information. And so I didn't hear back from that person for a while and I went to police and yeah. And then like a month or two later, uh, this person messaged me and said, I also went to police. I was like, okay. So there was like two of us. And then I really was only in connect, like still in contact with maybe two to three people. Uh, so I reached out to them and I said, this is what I, you know, I've done. So if you've decided you want to do something about it, you know, go do it. And so they were like, yep, they went right away, went to the police, filed police report. So that just snowballed. And so there was like 18 students that had gone to police um, by the end of 2021, I believe it was. And then we made a decision. So then that group just grew. We made a decision that if the police hadn't charged them by uh, the, by August of 2022, that we're not letting those people have another school year without the public knowing who they are. So we went forward in August with CBC and we did a story. Um, it became national news. There's been many news stories since then. Uh, we did not expect the positive support. Yeah, a lot of positive support showing up online. And at the same time, people are starting to realize what really is taking place there. Um, what was the turning point? Like, when did you realize, you know, that, okay, first off you're rocking the boat, but then you realize that there's wind in the sail that, Hey, this is something that is likely going to take off and we're justified in doing this. Right. So, you know, the, the ones of us that kind of came forward, uh, right off the hop, 
you know, we were the ones that had been told over and over, you know, we're rebellious kids. We're not good kids. We're bad eggs. <laughs> and so even there was like, I think a little bit of guilt almost, but it's like wanting to tell your story, but like still having those overbearing, you know, things in the background. But I know, and I know this, I've talked to a lot of people who went forward and they kind of echoed the same thing, actually telling police the story and like, the look on their face <laughs> like they're looking horrified and they're reading things back to me and from my statement like I wrote I think it was like 30 pages of statement when I went in because I just started writing and just it just kept pouring out of me um but it was uh you know seeing other people's reaction to our stories and it was like okay this is a lot more effed up than we knew it was you know so that was really validating but since then um, we have secured uh, Sharpsteins, so we have a legal team, and we've launched a class action, and it's my last name on the class action, um, and we're suing 22 uh, defendants right now, and the first court date's coming up in July for the class action, so things are rolling ahead. Uh, we have a judge that's assigned uh, and a great judge. And yeah, and then the criminal process is going through for one in one former staff who's also listed in the civil action. And the police have told us there'll be more charges coming soon for other individuals. So ball's rolling. It's been a slow process, but ball is rolling. Yeah, the ball's rolling and you did a lot and it, a lot of social change, social commentary. Um, like you said, there's been a lot of support. I'm assuming there's a lot of ghost supporters too out there that are probably supporting you in silence too. That, that's the vibe I get. Um, but in my world, like observing it, not too many people are talking about it who are indigenous. Whereas for me, it's kind of like, I want to see what this culture is like that you're speaking about. I want to hear about it because it is pretty alarming. It was pretty alarming to hear. Um, and again, it, it does correlate to sort of the experiences we've had with, you know, the church and religious institutions in the province. Um, but yeah, it, can you, can you speak and provide like a picture for us who haven't grown up in the church or haven't grown up in any religious organization of, of like, sort of like the culture or the social community that sort of plays out in those spaces that rationalize this and justify this. Like it was, it was alarming for me to hear them position themselves as above man's law and rationalize and justify what they're doing, which could exist for multiple things. But that was alarming to hear. Yeah. So I guess to kind of paint a picture as someone who started, I started when I was four years old. So it was, you know, pretty much my, I had one other, I think, social interaction in a normal, you know, I think pre play school uh, was at a normal school, <clears throat> but then I was put into this school and very much like very quickly when we joined the church um it was very evident like and they would say this the only your family is your church family so if you have family that aren't christians or even family that may be christians but their beliefs don't line up with that particular mm -hmm. church you were not supposed to associate with them uh so they you know as you're as you become a member there, cause they're big on membership. Mm. <laughs> so you had to, if you're an adult, you have to become a member of the church and you have to take class membership classes. You know, they, they just make that whole environment, your whole world. So they, I, they start slowly isolating different things around you. So it's your family, it's your coworkers that aren't Christians and your whole free time is just taken over by the church. So as a young person, you're in school, you're in the building Monday to Friday for school. 
plus there's Tuesday morning prayer at 6 a.m. And then you have church on Wednesdays, church on Saturdays, church on Sundays. <laughs> so you are in that building every single day. And they would do things to like, they started their own summer camp because they didn't want us teenagers going to another summer camp where there's other Christian teenagers. Wow. Everything was in isolation. Yeah, everything's in isolation. They're separating you from society, family members and friends who aren't necessarily involved. Paint a picture for us then of what takes place in the classroom because in our conversation, it's pretty alarming to hear what's going on there. Uh, so paint that picture for us because people tend to assume it's a Christian school, but at the same time, there's something taking place there. <laughs> Can you put words to that? To paint a picture, if you don't know about these independent or private Christian schools, so the, the system curriculum system is called ACE, Accelerated Christian Education, and this comes out of the states and very obviously, you know, Republican conservative type um, that wrote this curriculum. And this curriculum has had a lot of backlash for basically promoting colonization in the form of missionaries <laughs> mm -hmm. and a lot of like the whole curriculum all these booklets are just intertwined with indoctrination uh sexism is in there that's a huge thing classism like it's just awful and this curriculum has actually been banned in several states and so the pastor of the church um keith johnson at the time he brought this curriculum to Canada, started, and he's from Plainview, Texas. So he came here in 1980, opened the church and opened the church and then opened the school in 82. Yeah, that's amazing to hear because I don't think people realize that there's like this United States sort of Southern state evangelical origin story here. <laughs> I didn't know that until we started talking, but it's starting to make a lot of sense in terms of what you're explaining here. And by amazing, I mean, it's weird to hear that this has origins in the United States making its way north. That's alarming to me to know that this exists in our territory. Um, so what was it like in the classroom then? Like what was taking place for you as a student? It was so stringent and rigorous. Like you'd, you'd come into class. The first thing you do is pray as a class. Then you're sitting in a cubicle and these cubicles are not very big and they have huge dividers on the side. So, and you're sitting maybe like you're sitting up against a wall. So you've got maybe two, like three feet in front of you, maybe two to three feet. So, and you're, you're in there the whole time from nine o'clock till, you know, we go for a recess and then you're back in your cubicle, then you have lunch, then you're back in your cubicle. So other than gym class or music class, that was kind of the only time you're out of the cubicle or for a brief minute or two because we had to score our own work. So we would have to do the work, go up to what was called a scoring station and then score our own work. So this is really a homeschool curriculum and it's a student taught. And then imagine anybody who has any sort of learning disability or English as their second language or anything going on and then trying to sit in a desk and do this work. Yeah, and that, that is your story too there, right? Can you speak to that a bit? 
I was someone who at the age of four, I was, you know, identified as like, yeah, she has ADHD. Um, my mom didn't believe in medicating at the time. <laughs> so, I mean, those are my first memories of my teachers getting angry with me. And like some of the comments, the one teacher would make is she'd say like, you're just as hyper as the boys, you know, and that was, and it was a negative thing. And I remember my level one teacher getting so angry with me because I couldn't just sit down and do the work. And, um, they would see if you couldn't perform academically, they would call it, um, deliberate disobedience. Like you are making a choice to perform badly academically. So they would paddle kids. And this went on from kindergarten to grade 12. And they'd paddle kids if they weren't performing academically. And that was the majority of the reason that kids got paddled in that school was actually school wanted everyone to hit these academic targets that were up here and not everybody could hit those. That was a lot of, I would say a majority of abuse. Then there was, you know, a few people that didn't drink the Kool-Aid and so they were not towing the line. So, and this is mostly single parent kids. And so they were spanked for everything and anything. Yeah, that that's alarming. And it's interesting for you to explain it in this way, because I did observe and experience that type of logic taking place, in particular from educators who went to residential school or day school. So it's triggered in that regard. And I know it's different circumstances and different people. Um, not everyone's trauma is the same. But it is alarming to hear this and you apply this clarity to the problem and unpack it for us in terms of what you experience. So there is like this observation and learning taking place hearing you talk. But wow, it's like I knew that there was details like that. I think you really played it out well because I think also like in the mind of in, in the mind of indigenous people in this territory, I think there's also like this assumption that they don't want to walk, rock the boat. They don't want to get involved. Like not too many people are, you know, sharing or speaking to, you know, the experience you went through or even sharing that information. I find like I'm one of the only ones. But when you, when I hear you speak to it about that in that way, it is pretty triggering. It is really triggering for me. Right. Because again, like I said, we are in this era of reconciliation and this era of people learning about residential school. But then at the same time, on the flip side, there's still children going through or having gone through this experience of an education system that's highly toxic, highly problematic, highly abusive. Um, and in my mind, it, like the balance doesn't exist in, in society for any sort of justice to take place because the behaviors are still here like the behaviors in the system is still here and even hearing you speak about the correlation of like this curriculum tied to this ace curriculum tied to the united states coming out of texas it's like yeah this is a problem this is a problem yeah <laughs> yeah and one of the reasons why this school was even a thing and became a thing was because they have a very specific relationship and discourse to politics to government can you speak to that a bit this school opened in 82 and they were given the green light to open. Like they didn't have funding at the time, but I mean, this was Grant Divine era. <laughs> yeah. The premier of Saskatchewan at the time was Grant Divine. And so Grant Divine, like his leadership said, go ahead, open the school. And I mean, there just wasn't checks and balances in place for these types of schools to be operating. But then anytime that there was people in the community that were kind of pushing to be like, mm. okay, what's going on at these schools? Uh, this school would cozy up with government. And there is, I mean, a huge correlation to 
like in high school, like we did campaigning for like, we would go door to door and deliver flyers for certain conservative MLAs or conservative mayor candidates in the city of Saskatoon. And we would have to stuff envelopes. um, And they would like literally take us. So we're supposed to be doing schoolwork. They would take us in the afternoon on like the 15 passenger school van to this MLA, potential MLA's office. And we would do work there. And then we get drove back by the time, you know, it was time for our parents to pick us up. So there was some really bizarre things going on. And it wasn't like when we went there, it was like, okay, let's talk about politics. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about voting. Like, this is how, no, it was like, go sit down. Here's your 500 envelopes, go stuff them. And then, you know, this person's going to do this. Like that's, that's how it was. It wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. as I've, I've heard Maurice Spellicott make comments because he was one who we, <laughs> you know, longtime conservative MLA in Saskatoon. And he's one that we did a lot of free labor labor for. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, oh, it's an educational experience. Yeah. Bullshit, Maurice. You were never there half the time. And when we were, you know, doing stuff, you weren't talking to us, you know, explaining you know, the democratic process. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Child labor. Like it's so like, it's wild. It's, it's not wild. Yeah. It's believable when you hear it. It's like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. What's wild is that it's like, it took place here. Right. And then, I mean, they say like they, mm-hmm. they, the, they did the name changes and things like that, but I mean, yeah, the culture is still out there. Right. That's what's like really like kind of throws me a wrench in my mind. It's like, wow, there, there's people out there still who are doing this and have done this and they're in the community they're in the city they believe these things they support these things and it's all around and and again with me you know being anti-colonial decolonial looking at it from my perspective my history it's like mm, this is this is still a pretty major like concern and problem that pr- probably is not necessarily going away mm-hmm. um and that we have to be really mindful of and I guess I want to ask you the question too, is, is like, you're talking about this history, this experience of you going through the school, this school, and, and obviously, you know, it impacting you, but I, I want to sort of like get to the pinpoint time in your life where you came to realize that the school, even the religious aspects, the church was harmful, abusive. And like, what steps did you take to distance yourself from that group? Like, when was that turning point for you when you started to realize, okay, so this is, this is a problem and I need to move away from this? I mean, I think really it was when we left um briefly and went to Kelowna when I was 10 and I went to another Christian school there and we were part of a church but it was just so wildly different like it just it was like day and night and I had certified teachers they use public school education it was the first time I'd ever been teacher taught so that was a huge adjustment And when I came back I definitely like something in me changed and I began to see more how abusive it was. So I had, I, we returned just before my 11th birthday and one of my classmates who I've reconnected, well, two of them actually, who I've reconnected with, they told me, they said, when you came back, one of the first things you did was you told us girls, like this individual is a pedophile, stay away from him. Do not be alone with him. And And like, so I was like 10, like I'm 10 and I'm telling my, you know, classmates, like look out for this person because I had had an experience, you know, a few experiences with this person prior to leaving. So I just, I'm like, yeah, that that's kind of when the change happened. And then it was just really hard to reintegrate back into the cult (laughs) after being out because 
it was just like, this isn't normal. And it became just more apparent. So as I got older, obviously it was harder for them to control me. And um, yeah, and then I left a few weeks after graduation. Um, you know, I graduated from there and, and, and at that point, my mental health was garbage. Like I was not doing well. I was very suicidal. I'd had a couple attempts at that point and it was just really tough. They had, you know, kicked out my best friend, um, for being gay and, it was just really lonely and isolating. And I just, it was like, I have two options. I can stay here and I'm not going to live much longer or I can leave. Yeah. And I think that speaks to like the quality of education you received there in terms of how they were setting people up for life. I mean, the only other option would be to stay and you chose not to do that. And you, you ventured out into the world, right? You ventured out into the world. Um, Explain to us what you did after graduation. I, found an ad in the paper saying that they were looking for housekeepers in Banff, Alberta. (laughs) And I didn't have anywhere to live, but I had a job. So I packed up my car and I drove. And by the time, like, by, it was like 8 PM that night, I had a place to live and yeah. And then I stayed there for a year and a bit. So that was, but I, when I was there, I think I was there for about two or three months uh, in Alberta. And I realized like everything was totally foreign to me. It was like being in another country. I didn't know how to be around people that weren't from my community. And I had to like watch other people to see how to fit in (laughs) because it was just like a fish out of water. Um, and then I, I just went into a place where I was in Calgary with some friends, the one day we had days off and I just went into this place and I was like I don't know what I need but I think I was in a cult and I think I need some sort of counseling and so I did an intake with them and they were like yeah you need a you need a psychologist you need someone who can do deprogramming so that's when I started so I am very fortunate because I was able to start kind of deprogramming and getting therapy right off the hop like right after leaving um and a lot of people are just doing that for the first time so I've been in therapy off and on for 17 years. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, yeah. For, for real. And then, I, I mean, like it's like next level in terms of like, you always hear people say like they had a horrible high school experience, but then mm-hmm. you're talking about this whole like freaking indoctrination you experienced and, and you were there. Um, and yeah, like the long-term, you know, psychological impact of that you speak into that's really um, important. And, and especially like to hear in terms of like, I feel like I'm not getting that in the media. Like I'm hearing about the abuse and I'm hearing about mm-hmm. these things that in terms of the story and of course the news stories, but it's really interesting for you to paint that picture of you having to live with this and still getting counseling even, you know, for 17 years, you know, still obviously probably dealing with that trauma as it comes up, even with the court case being present. But one thing that attracts my attention and we talked about this before and you even mentioned it in the media is that it's essentially a cult, right? And it required mm-hmm. deprogramming. And with that being said, how far into, you know, the extended community does this um, cult exist? Well, at the time, I think around the time we joined, the church was at 350-ish. So it was a pretty decent sized congregation for Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. And then a few years after we joined, there was a sign- like there was maybe like 30 to 40 people that left the church because uh, due to financial fraud that the pastor was committing. Mm-hmm. 
and was kind of exposed on, you know, so the church kind of would go through these ups and downs of like, they'd get an influx of new people. And then sometimes they'd have, you know, a couple people leave. But the thing about leaving there, though, is when you leave, like you left for good, like you would not be welcome back. Um, you were not. I mean, I've seen dozens of emails from former students who left as adults and emails from people in church leadership telling them like you've made this choice to leave i see no um no point in continuing our friendship or and these are like people we've known since we were toddlers like just and they'll just cut you off like it's nothing and so i mean if you left I mean, not when I was there, we didn't have social media, but after, you know, there's other people, they would just like, it would, they'd get blocked by everybody from the church. And that was, that was the culture there. And we were, I mean, our pastor was like, our church is unique. Like we are the it church, you know, we're different than everybody else. And so even us like associating with other youth groups, that I like, I can recall one time we went to another church when a youth group was having a thing and that's it. And we were often told like, they're not even as Christian as they need to be. And so that wasn't even good enough for us to hang out with other Christians in the city. So that's like how small our bubble was. So like, I pretty much, you know, minus one or two people, the same people from when I started when I was four to when I graduated. So it's the, they're like siblings. Like, it's like, you know, way more than you want to know about these people <laughs> and all of your childhood memories are with them in school and out of school. Yeah. And then, so with this, with this picture you painted with the terms of community, everyone knowing each other, but they're still active participants in the community, right? So they're, they're, they have jobs. They're obviously like working out there in Saskatoon. Yeah, they do. I mean, there's a large number that were employed with the church and school, so that was kind of a thing too, because they didn't want, you know, they, they like to keep people as close as they can. Um, after high school, it was mandatory to go to faith college, which was their two-year Bible college. And they dissuaded people from getting, going to post-secondary until they've gone to Bible college. Women, they dissuaded like from going to university, period. But men, it was okay for them to go once they did two years of Bible college. That even was like another two years of just keeping you in the building and control. So, and I, I was terrified that I was going to get sent to faith college too. So that was another reason for leaving because <laughs> I was like, there's no way, <laughs> there's, there's no way I can do another two years with these people. <laughs> So personal question, again, answer if, if, you, if you want, you don't have to answer if you edit it, but personal question. So why, why did you stay? Like you structured as a cult, it's there. Can you speak to the reasons why you were staying, why it was difficult to leave? That it, Like what existed there in that space? Well, when they isolate you and they do it so slowly over time, they isolate you from everybody. You don't have anybody else. So you're, I mean... <laughs> 
you don't have people that you could just be like, I'm getting out of here and I'm going. And I mean, I did, I am very thankful for my grandparents. Um, they are not religious and they always kind of were the voice of reason. And I have some other family members who are academics who have always kind of were like, maybe you should think about that a little more question things a little more, you know, when it was, Mm -hmm. we're talking about anything, uh, you know, going on in the world. And I would just regurgitate like a baby bird, whatever the pastor had said. Um, So, I mean, I did always have them as a really strong, uh, strong support in my life, but during the time when things got really, really bad, they were living in the middle East. (laughs) So they had taken, my grandpa had retired here and he was, uh, head of x-ray actually at the all three hospitals. And so he retired, they took this other job and um, there just wasn't any outside support, I guess, at that time. And we were also taught to basically be in fear that if we spoke out, that they were going to take us away from our families. That was the fear that was always put on us. So we were scared to speak out. So I would do it anonymously. I would walk across to Lawson Heights um, pool there and the wave pool and the library. And I would call social services and I wouldn't give my name, but I would call social services and I'd be like, this is what's going on. And they were like, yeah, we need like, we need names. We need specifics. And I'm like, no, no, like just come in. You'll see the paddle in the desk in the principal's office. Like I was like, talk to the students. And I, I mean, I don't ever remember a social worker being in the building or if they were, maybe it was hidden from us. Like we didn't know that's who it was, but I did. And I called Saskatoon police at one point too. And they said, well, you have to come down and give a statement. And I was like, I'm like, I was like 15 at the time. And I was like, I can't, like, I live on the North end. I can't drive down there. Like I can't come down and make a statement. And then I all actually, I also reached out to um, a family member's friend that worked for Global Saskatoon at the time too. And he was considering doing a story, but he was like, you would have to go on the record. And I was like, well, I can't like. Yeah. And that's not dealing with like the isolation and distancing that you would experience if you did go through successfully exposing what was taking place at that time. If you left and you had siblings still in the school, those siblings were not allowed to have contact with you. So I'm the oldest in my family. I have uh, two younger sisters and then I have some step siblings, but I didn't just the thought of not being able to see them was enough to keep me from leaving. So my sister, though, my middle sister, the middle sister in our family, she uh, got kicked out when she was in grade or I was in grade nine. So at the time that was horrific for me because then I wasn't allowed to have contact with her. Um, but I still had a younger sister too, that, you know, it just, it, it blew up families. You either had to all leave and be degenerates all together and leave the church. You couldn't have one member leave, um, because then you never have contact Yeah. And this would be under the project of control, dominating, you know, what you do, what your family does all under this church model. I mean, that's one um, thing on social media too. People often say like, what's going on with the parents? Like, how did they not, you know, do anything? And I mean, my mom was a single mom. And during the brief time that she was married to my stepdad, um, 
like the director of the school was abused, like physically abusive to my stepdad. I mean, he slammed him up against a wall, like in front of me and screamed at him. And like, he, he was totally nuts. And it was, so it's like, as a child, you're seeing that being done to an adult. And you know that, I mean, these people have hurt you before. So, you know, they have the power to do it again. It just, yeah, like it was really difficult. And especially for women to speak up and say anything. And then again, it's the same for these people. So they make, they make everything with the church and the school your whole life. So if you stand up to them, you know, you're not going to get that support, um, you know, you need, or, or even just, um, they brainwash the parents to like second guess, like, are you really in God's will? And then if the parents started, this is something they used to do to the older teenagers, if your parents started speaking up on your behalf, the leadership of the church would come to you as an older teenager and be like, so your parents aren't in God's will right now. They're really like falling off the path of God. So we think you should stop listening to them. So the amount of energy they put into manipulation and control was just next level. Yeah, this is like, this is the... This is like Netflix documentary series vibe. <laughs> you That's the ongoing joke. We're like, this is <laughs> turning into one of those bad Netflix series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's like, it's, it's pretty alarming to hear, you know, the stories coming out and what's taking place. And even like you positioning and saying, and obviously telling our audience that you, you actively reached out to people and social workers. You actually re- reached out to police and, and like, there wasn't really any, any initial way or they didn't respond like they obviously didn't mm-hmm. respond right and then i guess that even came out that was also evidence in terms of how you know i guess the province how well I, i'll ask that as the question is how do you feel like the province of saskatchewan has responded to the allegations of abuse at the school and in in this religious organization well i've been speaking in the media for the last two days on how they've responded which is mm-hmm. not great yeah <laughs> Um, you know, honest, I, I don't know, maybe I was a bit naive initially. I thought when we brought this stuff to their attention, cause I mean, it wasn't just like, Hey, this happened. Like we brought, you know, evidence facts, um, it, you know, said we can, you can talk to several different students. We gave them all the information. And I, I actually thought that they would be like, Oh, okay. Holy crap. Like, let's get a handle on this. But I mean, uh, on the other side of things, we know that there's been significant political involvement too. So, but it was like, at the time, I guess some of it too was a little bit like, was the political interference like as bad as, you know, some people are saying it is. Mm -hmm. So I thought that the province was going to respond better. They didn't. And it's just been actually wild to see how blatant the minister of education, his bias is with this and how strong he's willing to go to bat for these schools. Like he is willing to double down on things. It is wild. Like it is wild. Yeah. It's, and it's pretty like in my mind, it's cut and dry, right? You see it, you hear it. It's there. Now there's obviously like they're moving forward with, you know, um, um, charges and, and, you know, the court cases and everything like that's moving ahead, but you're still sourcing like the province, like you said, just kind of like double down. And in my mind, like from the indigenous perspective of things, it's like, man, this is, this is not the vibe of like the people we want to be working with in an era of reconciliation. 
Like this is like, how could any sort of social change come out of obviously, you know, not, not only just the, the government in play, but just in general, this, this consciousness and this paradigm that exists around the, the experience you're talking about. Like it, there is in my mind, like obviously like a culture of silence or even like a mm-hmm. culture of support or even turning the blind eye. Like, no, like that can't happen. Like these are good law abiding citizens type vibe, you know, let's turn the blind eye for, for so long so long so it does in my mind is a social indicator of you know how what's taking place in saskatchewan and how it functions culturally and of course there's obviously going to be good people out there you know there's you there's obviously good on the ground workers doing support who are aware but again like politically and socially there's there's some indicators here that we got a major problem i think that's an amazing point and that's very pertinent because it's like it's you can kind of see that it's just surface fluff even what they're trying to do for rec, you know, they say they're engaging in reconciliation, but it's just fluff yeah. deep down in their roots. They're still in 1940, 1920. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, like a lot of some of the Instagram comments we get when I talk about Saskatchewan or they hear about Saskatchewan, it, it is kind of alarming for them to hear that we're out here in the middle of nowhere. And, and it's almost like, there, there's a kind of a culture shock when they start to speak about it or when they start to hear us speak about it. Cause I like there's listeners in Toronto who say, Hey, you know, we heard Saskatchewan's like this and we're like, yeah, it kind of is like that. But then mm-hmm. also there's a lot of layers to this onion. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, and it is easy. I think to like, Oh yeah, we're flatland redneck racist people. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there has been a movement of more people that are, you know, educated, I guess, too, to speak on these things that are putting their voice forward. And not all of Saskatchewan is like that. And I, I mean, I'm born and raised in Saskatoon and I didn't live in Saskatoon for a long time because it was just triggering driving Mm -hmm. on the North end of Saskatoon (laughs) and seeing like the possibility of running into any of these people just gave me a lot of anxiety Mm. and I stayed away from where I was born and raised and I've been back um, since November and it's actually been amazing and like a breath of fresh air and it's like oh and like I let these people control that aspect of me being in my home community and being close to my friends and family because of the trauma they caused me so it was like getting that power back and like enjoying Saskatoon enjoying you know all the different things the city has to offer and being able to do it without that anxiety and it's kind of ironic now I mean I've heard from other people that I, I guess people from who are still at the church have seen me and like, are like, Oh, I'm scared. I don't want to run into her. Flip the script on him. <laughs> it's like this reverse dynamic of power now, yeah. <laughs> which is like, I'm like, Oh, I would still like, if someone came up and talked to, you know, talk to me, I would talk to them. If it was someone who is listed on the statement of claim, um, know your place and <laughs> don't, don't come and cause further trauma than you already have. But um, yeah, I don't, I, it's just, you know, it's one of those things. It's funny to, to see how things have changed. Yeah, definitely. And then especially me, like educating and, you know, being an instructor here at university for like a number of years, it's cool to see like the local younger generation start to become more critical, um, start to pick up on these concepts and be a bit more critical in this province is pretty cool. And, you know, a lot of them do listen to the podcast. Um, so yeah, that's sort of like, I guess the light at the end of the tunnel for me is, you know, my generation, we were still really dealing with a lot of blatant racism. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of faith in like the young people, uh, who are sort of up and coming and having, you know, the, the bit more, um, 
grounded and founded conversations. You also paint this interesting picture where you said, you know, th that you might run into people or, you know, obviously there's, there's still people out there in, uh, in the community, but in general, like what, what role do you think like education and awareness play in preventing people from getting involved with like harmful situations and situations and groups like this? Like what kind of support do you think is needed for those who have been affected by them? Like, like how do we, how do we start to raise a consciousness about, you know, this is going on, let's avoid it. Sure. So first off, I mean, the government has a responsibility if they're allowing these places to operate, they need to make sure that there's safety nets in place. So they have wildly failed on that front um, because school should be generally a safe place. Obviously, things happen here and there in schools, but to have four decades of abuse victims from one institution is unacceptable. And right now, I mean, the positive with people coming forward to police is that some people have been able to get therapy for the first time because they've never been able to afford it because they're able to access therapy through victim services. So that's huge. And I mean, the education piece, I think this has, I mean, I, I don't think, I know this has been a wake up call to a lot of people, not just in Saskatchewan, but all over Canada, um, where you know, we're identifying some of these key points of like, these are the things that really kind of change the dynamic from a religious organization to a cult. <laughs> and I, I think it's caused a lot of people to sit back and be like, okay, like, am I involved in these, you know, types of things? So, you know, former students sharing their story, I think is a big part of that. Um, because, you know, through human connection and hearing people's story, that's how people identify things in their life. So you can, you know, say specific things and be like, these are the things you should look out for in a cult. But at the end of the day, like just hearing those human stories and hearing shared experiences, those are the things I think right now that are going to help people and help people who, I mean, there's so many people that have experienced the same type of traumas we've experienced. So knowing that they're not alone, because that is a big, um, thing a lot of people, a lot of former students have echoed that they felt like they were just isolated and by themselves in that experience and living with it every day and thinking about their experience every day, but feeling like they're the only ones out there like that. Um, because even as students, they would isolate us from each other. So we weren't allowed to complain. Like we were not allowed to say anything negative about the school or church, or you'd be paddled. So if something did happen, we might know that someone's in trouble, but we don't know what for. We don't know the details because they're not allowed to talk about it and you're not allowed to ask. So there's a lot of people just like suffering in silence and suffering in isolation. Yeah, and that's what's wild. Um, can you give an update on that school for our listeners? Well, they're still open. <laughs> they're still open. They're still operating. Um, the last couple of days I've been talking in the news about uh, the administrative reports that came out. Uh, so after articles came out, uh, the government, uh, just from social pressure, I would say, <laughs> decided to put some government administrators in three schools in the province. And they ended up having to close one school because uh, like within a week, because the one director who was the director when I was uh, in high school, he would not abide by the government rules at all. Now, this is a school, that school had been open since 2013. So that man has not been abiding by the rules. 
since 2013. <laughs> and there, yeah, has, that's like a whole generation of kids. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> been, and yeah. there has been these inspections that the Minister of Education, Dustin Duncan, said we are doing three inspections a school year. Well, I have those inspections <laughs> and mm -hmm. through FOI, and they have not been doing three a year. They did one every fiscal year, if that. So that was a huge red flag. I mean, these schools have just been gone underregulated and overfunded for way too long. Yeah, and that's a really valid argument to make, too, in terms of funding agreements, funding arrangements with the province from an Indigenous perspective. Um, but what about the other schools? So that was the one school. Now, Legacy Academy, it's still open. We got the administrative reports. They're, they're still identifying. Like these people that were in the school, they're, they're identifying some of the same issues. They may not be swinging a paddle at that school anymore, um, but they are the psychological, emotional abuse is still very much well and alive. And basic things like aligning the curriculum with provincial outcomes, that's literally in 2011 when the school received funding, Legacy Academy, that was in the reports from these inspections was that the curriculum is not aligned, it's not on par, they shouldn't get funding. And then all of a sudden the next report is, boom, they get funding, but their curriculum's still not aligned. So that was 2011, We're, it's 2023. How, how do you not have the curriculum aligned at this point? Yeah. <laughs> like that just yeah, is true. willful ignorance on the inspectors you know, and the government. Um, there's other things too, like they were uh, suspending a kid for something that happened on the weekend, you know, at home. He was given his, you know, by his parents' permission to go somewhere. And another student saw it on Snapchat and told the pastor. And they suspended this kid. Wow. And wow. it's like that goes against the Education Act. You cannot suspend a child for something they did at home or in mm. their own time. Like that's not even a that's not a thing. And so that that was just another red flag. Uh, there was also in these inspection reports, um, the, oh, that the school's running a huge surplus, <laughs> which is ridiculous. So wow. here we are, public education's begging for the bare minimum. Yeah. And we have these government funded cult schools that are running a surplus because they can charge tuition. Yeah. Yeah, totally. There's, there's like, there's layers to this. There's conversations that like we could go off and talk about because yeah, there's a very real ironies playing out. And then like for me, like what I'm trying to wrap my head around is why do you think this is allowed to go on? Why do you think like the Saskatchewan is not stepping in to the point that they should? Like, do you think like the, the political interference is that deep? Oh, for sure it is because the, that's the voter base of the conservatives in this province and that's just the reality is that there are a lot of, um, you know, right winged individuals who are very conservative in their beliefs. But that is that's Scott Moe's base. <laughs> so, I mean, he's got an election coming up. He doesn't want to uh, interfere or make any of those people question him. So I think that's why he's kind of been meh, hands off and. I mean, with everything coming out now, though, like, it, I don't know how he can justify things. I mean, there's a lot of people, people that I know um, that have been longtime SAS party supporters that are not anymore. And strictly just because of his handling of the school stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Totally. I agree. I agree. And I, 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 that was my vibe too, was that in general, I feel like there is a conservative Christian base that wouldn't take too likely to Scott Moe closing or Saskatchewan putting pressure on a Christian school with the general terminology being very general there. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the only reason why they're allowed to continue operating. It's interesting. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, so in terms of the advocacy where, where you work, you've done, you know, you brought this to light over the last few years. Like you said, you you sat with it, reflected to it on with it on the during the pandemic, um, all the balls rolling in terms of some court cases and things like that. Um, how do you see your advocacy work evolving in the future? Like, what are your next steps? I don't really know yet. I mean, I would like to see there be some legislation in Saskatchewan in the future so that this doesn't happen again. And as a student group, that is really the driving force in why we came forward. And I think for a lot of people too, when they had children, because a lot of people um, in our student group have had children, you know, in the last four years or so. And that was a real big trigger for people having children and then thinking about their childhood experience and being like, holy crap, like how in the world could people have treated us like this? And so I mean, I would love to see that in the future. Are we going to see that with the current government? Probably not. But all I can do is just keep pushing. I told Minister Duncan in, well, it was August of last year. I said, like, this isn't going away. Like, I'm not going to be quiet. This isn't something that it's like going to fizzle out in a few months. Like, this isn't going away. So I'm just going to keep, keep calling it out as it comes down the line and, hope that there are some safety nets put in place at some point where we don't have to keep doing this every few decades and seeing more abuse victims come forward. So. Yeah, totally. I think that's where my heart goes to is like the, the victims of this abuse. Like you said, the school is still open. So literally right now, as we're having this conversation, there's students at that school right now in the city today. <laughs> and it's like, man, this is like, yeah, like I, I, yeah, obviously, you know, with my history and my relationship to colonialism, the impacts of residential school, like abuses, child abuse is like a big no, no, a big trigger point for me, especially having daughters and, and children and working with children. So it's like, this is a societal problem that is not being addressed. Um, so it is an, an ongoing injustice right now taking place. And I guess too, I, we didn't really touch, we touched on it in the beginning and we didn't really put more voice to it, but you also, things got pretty risky there for a while this past winter. You're, well, you're, there was a fire at your house a week after ours. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, since coming forward, there had been, you know, I'd gotten threats. I'd had a member of mile two church follow me, kind of corner me at my vehicle, really bizarre behavior. I'd had notes left on my deck. I'd had security cameras ripped down, put new security cameras up, um, had like, I've been emailed threats because I have a public email on my social media. Um, all things I just kept reporting to the police and, um, they basically the one individual at mile two from the church that followed me, the police did say, if you see that individual again, call 911 immediately. And I was like, Oh, cause there's a history there with this person. Is there? And they were like, all we can tell you is I would take it as a serious threat, call 911. I was like, okay. So, and I, and so the law firm also reached out to Mal too and said, you need to decry this behavior. You need to tell your congregation. And they were like, didn't respond to it. So then fast forward a few months, um, 
my daughter was up, we're up fairly early. And she said, mom, there's something on the house. And I was like, what? And so she's like, I think someone's spray painting our house. So we go look and I couldn't see what it said until I got facing forward on it. And it was a scripture verse. It was the same scripture verse I had been emailed and it based it's Hebrews and it's God is an all consuming fire. So I called the RCMP and when I called, they were like, yeah, we actually don't even have anybody on right now. Like we have no officers. And I was like, okay, that's comforting. So then they said, uh, we're going to send it to another detachment and see if we can get somebody out. I'm like, okay. So a guy finally comes about four hours later and he, so I'm talking to him and he's like, well, why would some spray paint scripture on your house? Like, so I'm like, well, here's the articles, like enjoy your read. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and he just, he's reading the articles and just, you can just see like the, his face change. And he's like, okay. And he's like, I'm going to need you to like write down all your kids age descriptions, what bedrooms they're in. And I'm like, cause you think this is a like viable threat. And he was like, yeah, he's like, I do. He's like, these people sound insane by what I'm reading. <laughs> So I was like, okay, so I kind of was, the kids didn't have school. So we um, ended up going into the city and we we're going to have a little staycation, but I had my dogs. We have like a attached garage that has a dog run. So the dogs can go in and out. So I left my two big dogs there and we came back uh, the next, like it was late afternoon, early evening. And to just feed the dogs, give them more water. And my nephew and I, like we were in the house for like not even a minute, maybe, or two minutes. And we went downstairs because my nephew wanted to grab something and we heard movement. And so we heard like feet on carpet and I only have carpet in one small place upstairs and then the rest in the basement, like a thud kind of like hitting a wall. And I, I was already freaked out at that point from getting spray painted so I like turned to my nephew and I'm like, did you hear that? He was like, if you heard feet on carpet and a thud, that's what I heard. And I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. So I'm like, run. Cause it was evident there was some, someone had broken into our house. So I get in the vehicle and I realized I left my cell phone sitting there. So I drove to the detachment and I, I just, you know, an officer banging on the door, no one's answering an officer was coming around the building in a car. So I like flag him down and I'm like, someone in my house I just remember him saying like well who's in your house and I'm like I don't know like someone broke in my house and he's like well don't go back to your house and I'm like obviously <laughs> it was just like and I was I mean panicking a little bit too yeah. and so he's like okay he's like I'm going to a call he's like I'm the only officer on he's like I'm waiting for another officer for another detachment and he's like I will get to your house at some point do not go back so I'm like okay so then it was like around midnight, I got a message on Facebook on my computer from mm -hmm. uh, an RCMP from, I think it was like, it was a different detachment. And he was like, I got to call me right away. So call him. He's like, I don't know how to tell you this. Like you've got a house fire. And I'm like, nope, wrong person. I'm like, I called about the break and enter. <laughs> and he's like, no, no. He's like, I'm pretty sure this is your house. There's pictures of you in it. <laughs> He's like, you have red house, two big dogs. And I'm like, no, no, we had the break and enter. Like, I just could not, I was in total shock and just couldn't understand it. And yeah, 
yeah. And then I didn't like sleep for two days after. Cause I just was just like trying to process it. And then it was like trying to tell the kids too. I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know how to tell my kids this. Um, I have one son, um, that I co-parent, uh, with his dad. And so I asked him to come over and my family and sat the kids down and talked to them and just said, Hey, like, this is what happened. I don't know what state the house is. I don't know what our belong, if we have any belongings, this is what happened. And they were all like, they started crying, but some of them were like, you know what, but we're alive, you know? And that was, and I was like, yes, yes, we're alive. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) That is the positive. And, you know, it was trying, trying to be really sensitive of their emotions. Yeah. Then how did you fare through that? Like, what was your psychology and what were you going through? It was really bizarre. And I think it took almost a month for me to actually like have the emotional response to it. Cause I was just totally in shock for a while. And then it just like, yeah, hit me. (laughs) And then I was like, Oh, I'm not okay. (laughs) And then my mental health just kind of took a dive, but I did. I mean, I had the supports around me and people around me and professionals around me that I could reach out thankfully. And Mm -hmm access that because yeah it's it's hard when you're the parent and you have all these little people to take care of so you need to be on all the time and having you know this lawsuit near the face of a lawsuit and you're being strong for all these other students too and then you have this go on so it's like I had to but I had to also be allow you know allow myself to have that space to not be okay for a bit and yeah and then work through that so yeah it was it was a bit of a go for a while (laughs) Yeah. Did they ever find like, is there a suspect or did they ever find somebody or doesn't really sound like they investigated to be honest. Um, again, it's a manpower and capacity issue out there. So the last few conversations I've had with the RCMP, they've just been like, we have no new news. Like we don't know anything. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, like appreciate, you know, you guys being out there. I get that it's really tough right now, but, um, capacity wise, but yeah, just, yeah that's it yeah do you feel that is directly correlated to the work you've been doing in terms of exposing the abuse at this school oh for sure it is and you know a week before it's like a week or two before the fire happened um there was a pastor in the states that actually got up on stage and threatened me saying i'm gonna lose my life and saying um a bunch of other things and I didn't realize that, or I didn't know, wasn't notified actually about this till I think it was the week after my fire, because people from that congregation somehow got a hold of my TikTok. <laughs> and so then they put, put two and two together because the pastor of our former church, of our church, uh, Keith Johnson, he was actually at this church in Amarillo, Texas, and he was there with another pastor and that it was the other pastor so he was sitting in the congregation as this other pastor got up and said I was gonna he called me a demon (laughs) uh said that I was gonna lose my life and like was like I'm prophesying drop the charges drop the charges and just like total looney tunes so uh that so people from Amarillo Texas who I do not know at all started reaching out to me and was like, Hey, we're really worried about you. And we're concerned and we're not okay with our pastor having these individuals at our church. So that led into a whole thing where there was like 20 families that actually left that church. And 
because this pastor kept having Keith Johnson there to speak. So it's pretty interesting to how this has moved. You know, we, we knew there would be some involvement maybe with Texas, but having people in Texas who are still very religious standing up for us and standing up for me. And a lot of them have added me to social media and I've been engaging with them for a long time, but, you know, and them just saying like, this isn't okay. Like this isn't what God is about, you know, in our belief and whatever. And that's been really great to have that support too. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I know we got some listeners down in Texas too <laughs> that listen to radical narrative. Do you? Yeah, oh boy. yeah. I won't say where specifically, but yeah, they're down there. Uh, so that'll yeah. be, it's going to be interesting to hear this correlation come out <laughs> to, to Texas with this uh, school here in Saskatoon. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess that's leading me into the next question too, is, is how, how has your faith endured over this, like your relationship to God? I mean, I, I have not practiced any sort of religion really, I would say since mm -hmm. I left, um, like that type of organized religion. Um, I, mm -hmm. I mean, as you know, like my majority, well, all of my children, I guess, in some form are, um, you know, identify as first nations indigenous. So they, we practice a combination of things, I guess, <laughs> mostly around nature and, I definitely have participated more, you know, in their culture and the beliefs in their culture than I have mm -hmm. anything in 17 years. So that's kind of where we're at. And I mean, I've had lots of, before all of this came out, I mean, I had to sit my older kids down and be like, yeah. this isn't something we've talked about before, but this is something that happened and this is what I went through. And so you're going to see this come out in the media. And I guess it was a good way to, to like, speak with my children too about like this is why you know mom stands up for you so hard at school and this is you know and it's been having to find that balance of you know anytime I'm in a school I feel anxiety and so but I have six kids <laughs> so I'm you know they're all in school and it's that balance of like standing up for them supporting them but then at the same time realizing that, you know, my trauma isn't their trauma. And so letting the teachers and staff have that space too. So it's a hard balance. And I think about the days where like for my mental health, I've had, I've kept my kids home because if there was something going on at school and I just didn't have the capacity to even begin to address it. And part of that's, you know, part of my trauma that's affected me, but it wasn't something that I know I, I didn't know I needed to address until I had kids. <laughs> Cause it was like, oh, now, you know, it affects this part of my life. And sometimes, you know, things come up over the years because it's different, you know, it affects you in different ways and on the lifespan, different ways as you're going through developmental stages. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And that's definitely relatable to just in terms of like where I'm at with, you know, raising two daughters who eventually have to go to school, have to engage with this society post pandemic in Saskatchewan. And so that's why a lot of this stuff's pretty alarming. Cause I'm coming at things from like the perspective of, of being a father now. Mm -hmm. too. And it's just like, it's a whole new chapter obviously, but it's also like a whole new psychological shift and <laughs> just like observing how the world works and functions. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess one question I want to ask too is how can listeners support the work that you're doing, especially in terms of like, holding those responsible for the abuse at school accountable and in terms of like politics, society, you know, what's taking place in Saskatchewan politically. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? 
One, I mean, one way if you, I mean, is I know it sounds cheesy and like, it seems like it doesn't do anything, but writing your MLAs, your premier, you know, minister of education and just telling him like, this is, you know, I am a resident of Saskatchewan. This is not acceptable. Um, that is a big thing. Always make sure you tag though in that email, um, somebody else <laughs> so that you know that they've received it and they've gotten it. Um, because I, I have run into that where I've spoken in the media and said, Hey, I, you know, I emailed them on this date and then the government has actually come back and said, no, you haven't. And then I show them their own response back to my email. <laughs> Thank yeah. me for sending them an email. <laughs> yeah. Good strategy. Also just sharing on social media, you know, that's a big thing. And, um, and just anytime students are sharing their story, you know, if you're supportive of us and, you know, supportive of us trying to cultivate this change, then please just like the encouraging words are what really has been the difference for some people coming forward, because that encouragement is something we never got, you know, that positive encouragement. So for, especially from people that are considered like outside the bubble, <laughs> Um, having, because we were taught to fear these people, to fear anybody that wasn't us. So that part of things, you know, just sharing encouragement, you know, that's so huge. And there will be opportunities in the future, I think, to um, in person possibly <laughs> uh, support us. So um, we'll have more information on that later on. But uh, right now it's just, you know, really getting the articles out there because there's still some people you'll get, you know, it'll be one article and people will be like, how have I not heard about this yet? And then they're go down a rabbit hole and they're like, holy crap, there's 25 articles on this. Totally. And I like, well, you, your episode came from special requests from people in the area who want to know more about it because of that very reason. Oh, wow. It was not too many, not too many people heard about it yeah. um, or are seeing it, but then when they do, it's like, this is happening. And that was my experience with it too. It was like, oh damn, like I went down the rabbit hole and that's why I'm like, damn, this is like ongoing. This is right now. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So like you, you came, like some of our listeners said, yeah, get, get her on. Let's have a conversation with her. Um, just that highlight this too so yeah like social media is really like i think coming out more than i don't know like i don't know why people aren't seeing it i don't know if it's like i don't want to say like a shadow ban's taking place but i think it's like just saskatchewan's tendency to out of sight out of mind it but also again like just the political culture of this being a conservative province with a lot of you know in general christians who are probably not wanting to touch this for various reasons yeah, I'd have to agree with you. And I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. And, you know, it's, it is interesting. Um, just, yeah, how people I think too, obviously, people are looking at news that um, supports their beliefs too. <laughs> mm. So you will see a cer certain demographic of people that don't uh, listen to the news. But um, no, I really appreciate you having me on. You had great questions. So yeah, it was great to have you on. I really appreciate everything you share with us and giving us an insight of what took place and what's taking place, what's ongoing. Um, closing questions, any like key readings, resources you would recommend our listeners to look at, look into? Um, I mean, resource wise, I mean, they're just, you can Google legacy Christian Academy if you want to know more. Mm. Um, also the statement of claims or so civil action is 
uh, listed publicly at Sharfstein Law. So if you just look up Sharfstein's Law in Saskatoon, um, when you click on their website, it's just at the top of the page. And if you are a former student and you're listening to this and you're wondering how to join the lawsuit, all that information is on Sharfstein's page as well. The intake is posted there. So if you want to actually read the court document and see everything we're alleging in the class action, uh, it's a very long document. It's a very obviously like trigger warning because there's a lot of stuff in there, um, but the information is there. Cool. And then I, we do have a lot of educators who listen to our podcast in general. Uh, what was the name of the curriculum that was being practiced and maintained there? So it's called ACE, Accelerated Christian Education. And I've been doing some work um, just talking to other ministry of eds in other provinces and seeing what they're doing. And with this education, with this curriculum, and so far every single province except for us in Manitoba, um, do not view it as a curriculum that is up to standard. Interesting and very telling, very telling of the province we live in. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Any, any shout outs you want to give? Anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, just, I think, you know, I have to reiterate again, you know, I'm one person. I have a very large uh, group of students behind me that do a lot of work um, behind the scenes and, you know, help with letter writing and, you know, doing different things. Uh, so I would not be able to do everything I'm doing without all of my former classmates rallying and um, coming behind me and beside me and, you know, just being there. And like a lot of us have not spoken in decades. so. It, it was just really interesting how quick everybody just all clicked back together, <laughs> you know, and uh, I wouldn't be able to do this without them. And I have, I mean, I have a huge support system. I have, you know, a, a pretty amazing boyfriend who supports me and he's very, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for him because this, it was something I had a discussion with and said, this might possibly be a thing down the road I don't know it could be big it could be small you know me I don't think he thought it would be as big as it is so uh but huge support you know him and his family and my family too has been supportive so um you know I can't couldn't do it without them for sure yeah for sure definitely definitely well thanks for staying with us I appreciate your time and you gave us a lot to think about and even look into you in terms of the province of Saskatchewan Saskatoon um Legacy Christian Academy um, a lot of information here to begin to reflect on. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Take care, Marilyn.